This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome to a brand new year and yet another edition of Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martorano. I'm here with you each and every week. And what we do, as we've been doing now for five or six years, is talk about the disease of addiction and the road to recovery. The, the thing least talked about when we talk about the epidemic that's going on or the disease of addiction is that the truth of the matter is that lots of people get sober. Millions manage to get their life back on track and live in long-term successful sobriety. So we always want to leave you with that information every week. Recovery Radio is sponsored by Retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, about which more later. I hope the holidays were good for you and your family. I hope they they treated you well and they've released you from their grip. And we thought in the spirit of the occasion that we would talk about the new beginnings that we all associate with the new year. And what better way to do that than to talk to a, a person who uh, founded an organization dedicated to that in general. Magnolia New Beginnings is the name of the nonprofit peer-supported group. It's for people who living, are living with or have been affected by substance abuse. To that end, we welcome Maureen Cavanaugh. Maureen founded Magnolia New Beginnings. She is also the author of a remarkable story. Her book is entitled, If You Love Me, a mother's journey through her daughter's opioid addiction. And we're pleased to have her as our inaugural guest in the, this brand new year. Maureen, thanks for joining us on Recovery Radio. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much, Steve, for having me here. Uh, let me say thanks for sending me the book. I uh, uh, It's packed. It's it's a slim volume, a couple of hundred pages. It's packed with an amazing story. And I literally, uh, I'm a fast reader to begin with, but I really went through this. As, I guess it's what people would refer to as a page turner. So congratulations. It's a terrific, uh, terrific job in writing the story of your, of your daughter and, Thank you so much. and your struggle. Uh, Maureen, tell us about you so people can sort of uh, get an idea of who you are. Well, um, I mean, I'm a, a fairly ordinary person, which is, I think, what makes that story all, all that much more, um, you know, uh, jumps out at you even more. I was a special education teacher. I had four children. I um, really uh, had no intention on doing a lot of the things that I'm currently doing. I'd always worked in, you know, nonprofits and volunteered, but this all came, um, a lot of this came out of my daughter's struggle and my own struggle to find help for uh for her but also for me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i know from reading the book and talking to you in preparation for this that uh, new beginnings really didn't start out uh, mm-hmm. uh singularly dedicated to people struggling with the substance abuse issue you're you're kind of a self-starter you're you're a uh, woman who's begun and ended and begun again a couple of businesses so you were sort of inclined before the problems hit your family to set off on new paths. Is that true? That's true. And um, the new beginnings part was more, um, I thought that uh, Magnolia would give opportunities to people that were starting over for a variety of reasons. And I knew that, you know, a lot of the times it would probably be somehow related to substance use disorder, which was great for me because my I have a family history of that. Not a personal history, thank goodness, but... Um, all throughout my entire family. Um, so I know all too well 
what it's like to have to start over again and to watch people fall and pick themselves back up maybe, but they have that need to start over. I was working as an ESL teacher as well and working with a population that sometimes needed a fresh start and needed a little bit of a helping hand. So the goal originally was just to give people that, that new, new beginning for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, whether it was substance use or divorce or maybe even just being new in the country. Yeah. So when we, Came aware of you. We we love this notion to start off our new year on the program, you know. And we'll get into this in much more detail. But with regard to new beginnings in the context of substance abuse, what people will learn from reading your book, if they don't know about this from firsthand experience, is that this notion of beginning again or a new beginning can occur almost daily when you're struggling with substance abuse or and someone in your family, right? That's so very true, and it needs it, that needs to be okay, because it's the past that often drags people down again. They get clear, they get motivated, and then they 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 feel like they can never get it back, or they can never start over again. That there's just no hope in doing that, and we need to get rid of that idea. It, there's it's always possible to mm-hmm. to begin again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, your story and your daughter's story is a perfect example of what we're talking about here. Um, how many times, first of all, tell us about Katie. How old is she and, and uh, what was her, his, her history with substance abuse? Um, Katie was probably in uh, maybe 17 when she started to experiment in high school um, with alcohol and marijuana. And um, she got, you know, in trouble once. She got caught drinking and got in tremendous amount of trouble and, you know, lost her phone and lost her everything, her, all her privileges. And I didn't have any other problems with her after that. But when she went to college, she started to experiment with harder drugs and then eventually tried heroin. And it seems as though within a very short time after trying heroin, she was um, she was kind of uh, pulled into it and wasn't able to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, she came to me and told me that she was, you know, had been experimented kind of didn't really tell me the extent of everything and she went to an outpatient program so I was under the impression our relationship was so close that I thought she would come to me if she had any more struggles I didn't realize the power of the drug and um, what it does to people so I assumed that just because we were so close and we had such a great relationship that she would feel comfortable telling me even if she had gone mm-hmm. you know had had gone backwards and I was unfortunately I was wrong about that yeah you know uh, I always say that all stories of substance abuse and recovery are the same except they're different and uh, th- this is uh, this is a case in point when, when people are confronted with with uh, with heroin particularly in their family uh, it's always a shock you found out about sort of the dimension of Katie's problems in a, in a fairly uh, heart-stopping way by reading something in the newspaper. Share that story with us. Well, um, you know, she had gone into that outpatient, and then once again we wound up, um, other things had happened, and she wound up going into an inpatient program. And after the inpatient program, she sort of disappeared. She did what she said she was going to do. She went in, but then she disappeared. And... Um, Every day, she found a way to tell me that she loved me and some kind of connection. But a couple of days had passed, and I hadn't heard from her. And um, I was going back between her Facebook page and and email and just frantically looking for anything and just a nervous wreck, basically, and stumbled upon a... Um, 
an article in the local paper, uh, and the headline was Honor Student Arrested for um, Prostitution. And because I had been a special ed teacher in that particular school district, my heart kind of stopped a little bit, and I wondered who who could this possibly be? I hope I, you know, hope it's no one I know, that kind of mm-hmm. feeling that we do when we see something in the newspaper. And I read the article, and then I read it again, and I read it again, until it took about three times before I realized I was my, the article I was reading was about my own daughter. So um, that was the point, I think, where I realized that there was no, there was really no point in, in doing this quietly, that it, that it was out in the open and that I was going to start to speak out and I did and um, that this was way beyond anything that was going to be solved easily or solved quickly. Mm-hmm. Your, your, your reaction very often early on when, you, when you're trying to come to grips with uh, Katie's problem was to be angry. Uh, in the case of the newspaper, it was why would, why would they want to out somebody like this so without any context or maybe your neighbors who suddenly didn't know how to talk to you anymore. Anger is a, a, a kind of, I guess, typical reaction at the beginning of dealing with substance abuse, is it not? I think you're probably right. And I couldn't be angry at her because I knew that that was not my daughter. I knew that this was the drugs. Everything that happened, it was the drugs that was, that was creating it because I knew my daughter and I knew who she was. And um, so I think I, I was angry at everybody else. But, you know, people don't know what to say. And I understand that now. And everybody's traveling their own journey, too. You don't know mm-hmm. what's going on in somebody else's life. As far as the newspaper, I think, you know, grabbing that nasty headline is not um, not good journalism. So I don't take that back. <laughs> ah, good for you. Um, it's really a, a stunning way to find out about it. I mean, that's that's a tough. That would be a tough one under any circumstances. But your daughter, you know, it was. It was I'm sure it just stopped you in your tracks. Now, you and your husband had been div- were divorced during the the, the bulk of this uh, situation. How did that? Uh, and I know you were in a, you were in another relationship, but with with regard to coming together, uh, an ex husband and an ex wife. Did that add an additional burden to, to fighting this? Um, you know, it's hard to say because I hear lots of um, people, uh, their marriages break up over mm-hmm. over this. So who knows? I mean, we managed to stay friends through our divorce and, we're, and really tried to parent together. And we were able to come together even, even more so over her because we both love her and, and put that ahead of anything. And we were fortunate to both have partners that, that you know were on board with that and you know encouraged us to work together as well. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm struck reading the book about the the sort of speed with which this thing first presents itself to your family, then becomes you know catastrophic in its implications. Um, what what is the time frame from when Katie first tells you she thinks she's having problems to uh, you know when she starts to get help for the for real for the first time. She was an adult at that point, right? There wasn't much you could do. Oh, yeah. 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 She was in her, in her early 20s. So, um, you know, it was it was a period of a couple of years, but she was out of out of high school, had, you know, 
gone to a year of college and then was in a in a school to become an esthetician. All of this was happening as and she was at one, you know at the point where it got really bad living with her boyfriend. So it was she was out of the house. Mm-hmm. There was really not a lot I could do. It wasn't it wasn't like it was happening in my house in front of me. Well, we'll get deeper into that sense of uh, helplessness, which is a, a really big. A tough barrier or obstacle to overcome when you're trying to help somebody with this. Maureen Cavanaugh is our guest on the telephone. She is the author of the book, If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. She's also the founder of Magnolia New Beginnings and our guest on Recovery Radio. We have more of Maureen and Katie's story straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. This is Recovery Radio. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martirano with you. Our guest on the telephone to uh, talk to us at, as we begin a new year on the program is uh, a lady who, uh, boy, there are no flies on Maureen Cavanaugh. She's a very busy woman. She started a couple of companies on her own as a as a single mom. And at some point in her life, she uh, decided maybe she should uh, help other people uh, get new beginnings launched. She founded Magnolia New Beginnings, which uh, turns into a, a pretty substantial nonprofit organization that's dedicated to helping folks living with and affected by substance abuse, none more so than herself because of her daughter. Maureen's the author of If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. Uh, so Maureen, tell us uh, more about uh, Katie's struggle, and uh, in particular, her uh, history in uh, in treatment. Well. Oh, boy. Well, so, I mean, it would be, I can't even, every time, every time you think that you've hit the bottom, it can't get any worse than this, it would get worse again. And we, in Massachusetts, there's something called, where where I was living at the time, uh, a Section 35, which is, uh, the person has to be a danger to themselves or others. So we would have her sectioned, and then we would convince her to go into treatment. Well, before you go any further, Section 35-ing somebody means that that it's possible, even if they are an adult, to have them involuntarily placed into a treatment facility, right? That's correct. And there's many laws throughout the country like that. But um, in Massachusetts, it's called the Section 35. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a civil commitment, and there is... She's forced into treatment, basically. So there were many times where we did that, and she would know that that was um, hanging over her. If she was, you know, if the, the police have to be able to pick them up, and um, she would go into treatment rather than have into insurance-based treatment rather than that. There was times where she would come to me and would say, "I'm ready, and I want to go into treatment," and she would go into treatment. And then there were the other times where I would beg and plead and threaten and do everything else I could to try to get her into treatment. So with all of that, we're talking 40-plus treatment centers that she was in over over a fairly short period of time, over a couple of years. 40, um, 40 treatment uh, opportunities. Was she, was she detoxed with these all residential treatment programs? Was she detoxed every time? I can't even, you know, it, there were a lot, many, many, many attempts at detox and then... Um, and then treatment, so maybe 30 detoxes. It, it was it was horrible to watch. It was horrible to be a part of. Um, she would do it, I think, and even talking to her afterwards. She did it mostly because she didn't want to hurt her family, but she didn't really feel like she was capable, I don't think, of of getting, of, of, of starting her life again. Of, so 
every time she went through the process, she'd get a little bit further on a little, and then she would relapse. Yeah, yeah that, that attitude that she was doing it for everyone else um, probably makes it, I mean, that's not the reason you go to treatment, correct? Correct. But I have to say that um, I, I've come to believe that, you know, if we can get somebody to have a period of clarity that they may change their mind mm-hmm. about whether they're doing it for themselves or not. So There's also, in reading your book and in hearing these stories many, many times, um, a, a sense that, well, harm reduction becomes one of the principal objectives. You're, you're really not at – some, at some point, were you, were you less interested in she will get sober one day and more interested in I don't want her to die? Yeah, my, my hope was just to keep her alive long enough for that, that click that she wanted it, you know, because I knew that she was not there yet, <clears throat> but I knew she'd never get there if she was dead. So I was just all about keeping her alive. How often was she? Um, did she overdose? She overdosed more than thirteen times. So we know that it is thirteen times that brought her to the hospital or to uh, you know being revived by uh, by EMS. Um, but I believe that there was a, a very awful person that was um, allowing her to live at his house, and um, he would Narcan her. And when she overdosed, so these were not these were not counted in the thirteen times. He would Narcan her, and then he would text me and tell me to, to tell me how grateful I should be because he Narcan her. Yet he was the one that was hiding her when we were trying to get her into treatment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, not, not that you need to run into weird people while this horrible thing is going on, but you, you know that certainly sort of goes hand hand in hand right. with this. You know, this um, was a sick individual. Yeah, 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 indeed. Um, so, you know, one of the things that's amazing about people who relapse, and, I'm, and during this period of time, I'm sure she had many relapses. There were moments when you thought maybe she'd turned a corner, but she didn't. I'm always struck by the fact that people keep getting up and trying again, as though they were on some life or death race. And even though they fall down, they want to finish the race. Um, she she is like her mom in that sense. She didn't give up either, did she? No, she, you know... I think that sometimes she thought she gave up, but then she'd come right back again. So she's my hero. I think she's the most amazing person I've ever met. She, she because that tenacity. Oh my goodness, of just trying again and again and again. You, you said you had three other children as well. The family was close. Uh, Katie was particularly close to, I guess, her older brother, uh, Liam, no, younger brother. her younger brother, Liam. Uh, what was the effect? Yes. What was the effect on the on the other three siblings? It was difficult, you know, and everybody reacted in different differently. I would say that you know, Liam <clears throat> probably, I don't know. They were all heartbroken. They were all heartbroken, and it, it affected them all differently. Liam was is the kind of kid that he is so loyal, and he was so loyal to her. He would nobody could say a bad word about her. And he stuck with her, and she knew that. And I think that that was that was another reason why she kept trying. Your other son dealt with it differently, didn't he? Yeah, he. I mean, you know, the two older kids—they just didn't feel like they could be around while this was going on. Mm-hmm. It's careful not to. It's important not to judge the way other people in the family or around this uh, deal with it. I mean, everybody's got to deal with it in their own way, correct? That's correct. I mean, there's, they're really. 
everybody does the best that they can. Maureen Cavanaugh is our, our, our guest. As I said, there are a lot of stories. You've probably heard some yourself about the substance abuse. But if you want to read one book and really get um, an absolutely uh, riveting description of what this disease is capable of, you should pick up If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. Maureen Cavanaugh, our guest on Recovery Radio. We have more with Maureen. We're going to get to her nonprofit straight ahead. Stay with us. This is Recovery Radio. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We'll uh, get back with our guest Maureen Cavanaugh straight ahead. A reminder, though, that the retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, pay the freight around here. And I, I need to tell you a couple of things about why I'm giving you their phone number. They're a, they're a you know, an incredibly... Uh, well-regarded treatment facility. They've helped lots of people, both in the Lancaster County area in Pennsylvania and their facility in Florida. Um, they're good. I mean, they're good. If you should need a facility, just do your homework on them. I give you their phone number as an informational tool, and Peter Shore, who's the founder of Retreat, says, look, yeah, we're not telling you this is the only place you can get sober, but we're, we're, we want to answer questions for people. So if you need anything answered, anything at all that you've heard on the program or anything in your life, um, you can call and talk to somebody at retreat. 855-859-8808 is the phone number. And I tell you this every week as well. Uh, we hope you never have to use it. But in a in a bad moment, it could be very, very important. 855-859-8808, Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Maureen Cavanaugh with us uh, on the telephone. Uh, Maureen, I really do want to talk about the uh, sort of um, growth of uh, Magnolia New Beginnings, but I do want to spend a little more time on your daughter's journey. One of the ways you you managed to stay in contact with her, and this is fascinating, because there hasn't been a lot of good news lately about things like Facebook and social media. Um, but but in, in spite of everything that was going on in her life, she managed to maintain a contact with you through, well, her Facebook page, right? Yeah, that's correct. And I think that, you know, a lot of moms have learned that um, on social media, you can often see the last time somebody was online. And that became, if I didn't hear from her, that became my way of knowing that she was still alive. So it wasn't so much whether she was reaching out to communicate with you. You were just looking for her activity on social media to see if you could keep track of her, right? Yeah, or just make sure she was, if she was online, then she was still breathing. Right, if she was still posting, she she was still alive, which becomes your 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 central uh, your central concern here. So, and we'll and we'll discuss social media's impact on on uh, you know Magnolia New Beginnings, but on those occasions when the only lifeline you had was was Facebook and it was serving its purpose, what you really wanted was like I I eyeball to eyeball contact with her. And there's a incredible scene where you have breakfast with uh, with Katie. Um, after a long period of time of not seeing her, and tell us about tell us about that that morning and that and that meeting. You know, I think we all uh, anybody that's going through this, they, you do your fantasy, what thinking, what you would hope is going to happen. And when she had agreed to meet me for breakfast, I was hopeful that she would tell me that she wanted to go um, to right to treatment, that she'd show up with a bag packed, and of course that's not what happened. She actually showed up. And so high that she was wearing a shirt that I could see the track marks and she was thought she was okay, you know, high enough that she thought she was okay, but she wasn't. And um, as the breakfast went on, I realized that she was going to go on her way and there was nothing I could do about it. 
we tried desperately not to um, harp on the fact that she needed to go somewhere because then I was afraid that she wouldn't I wouldn't see her again and <clears throat> so it was it was incredibly painful to see how how really sick she looked and not to be able to do anything about it and and the fascinating thing in reading the, the description of that meeting is that you you uh, exi- you, you are getting good at doing something that turns out to be very, very important. You're, the one thing you're not talking about with her at that meeting is the one, only thing that matters. And that's, right. and that's a skill, I guess, you know, you have to develop. It's not denial. It's being careful that you don't say the wrong thing, right? Well, and also realizing what I had control over and what I didn't have any control over. And you were learning so, that you were learning that as you went along, right? Nobody was telling you how absolutely. to do this. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, as a parent, you're used to being able to fix things. And it, it took a long time before I realized this was not something I could fix. And then even after I realized that, it was a long time before it really sunk in that I had absolutely no control over what she was going to do. And if I wanted to keep her in my life, I needed to have my boundaries. Yes, I met her in a restaurant. I didn't bring her into the house. Um, but I also had to acknowledge the fact that there was only there was only so much I could do about this and that I, I wanted to see my daughter. And if I wanted to see my daughter, then I needed to not make it a, a, a nightmare of a meeting. Otherwise, I wasn't going to see her again. Can, can, can you explain, and I know it's tough, for someone listening, how a, a person in your position, a mom, can both accept powerlessness, in other words, there's nothing I can do about this, but not become um, racked with despair oh, and not give up. How do you balance? They seem like conflicting ideas. Yeah, it's, it's really, it, it was really a difficult thing to do because understood, and they call it detach with love, there was is you know the understanding that you have to let go because there's nothing you can do about it but that never ever meant for me giving up i never gave up for one second on her um but i recognized what i could do and what i couldn't do there's this great um victor frankel quote that's that when i um when i can no longer change a situation i'm challenged to change myself and that's what i felt that i needed to do i needed to change the way i looked at this so I made sure that I that I began to make sure that I had support for myself. I educated myself. I connected with every person I possibly could so that I would have information if she needed it and I had information for myself. But I knew that there was nothing I could do with that mm-hmm. unless she wanted the help. Well, it's a sharp and deep insight, and a lot of people need to know about it if they're struggling with this. What you're saying, if I understand you, is that while you can't change the content of something, you can change the context of it. And, exactly. And in that change, maybe you can help. You you settle into, and this is going to sound odd, but correct me if I'm wrong, but you and your daughter settle into a kind of perverse new normal where you, you, you get that she's struggling, do what you can – and hope for the best, and that's sort of the way it is for for a long period of time, right? Yeah. I mean, my, my standard sentence I said a million times to her is, I will do anything I can to help you if you want to get into recovery, but there's nothing else I can do for you aside from tell you I love you. And I made sure that I told her I loved her every single day. Mm-hmm. A woman with four children, obviously... You know, it's the one that needs you the most, that gets the most attention. You must have struggled at times with 
with fears that you were neglecting the other three. Did you did you become particularly sensitive to what's going on in their lives, fearful that maybe they would slide into a an abyss of addiction? They're, they're very, very different. It's it's interesting. I mean, I would say that if I had to step back and look at now knowing what I know, I, I who it was that <clears throat> might be affected by by uh, substance use disorder. I think now I could see it, but years ago I would have never picked her as the one that she was not a a risk taker she was not in trouble she was not any she was the most kindest the most empathetic the one that the world bothered you know it wasn't her problems not as much those problems didn't bother her as much as the rest of the world she'd see something on the news and it would give her a nightmare you know Mm -hmm. so now I see that this is these are the kinds of people that are being affected by this disease is the the people that are almost too kind for this world and I see it over and over again with the young people that are affected it's almost as though the disease picks folks like that to to uh, to make sure the, the rest of us understand how insidious this uh, this disease is now during all of this your daughter is of course your primary and foremost concern you're picking up these skills on how you're dealing with her and suddenly I guess part of it had to be a defense mechanism you are in your spare time which is a funny expression helping (laughs) helping other people just by sharing what you're learning well you know I'm a researcher so this is what I do anyhow if I want an answer to a question I make sure I find I find the answers lots of answers and then I decide what I'm going to do but um all this research, all these connections, all this that I was doing, I had to do something with it because this could not just be pain. It just couldn't because that would have killed me. So I started to reach out to other people and and connect other people to each other. And that's where Magnolia came from. And uh, I mean, as it is right now, uh, as it is today. As it is right now. And uh, describe a little bit of the kinds of things that go on through and with Magnolia New Beginnings. Sure. So uh, Magnolia really has two parts. We have a financial mission, and then we have our our uh, peer support. Um, peer support, we um, have Facebook groups. They're closed groups. There's an open page, but there's closed groups. And what that means is you have to request to join. So you answer a couple of questions, you request to join, and we have 31 groups. We have grandparents groups. We have groups across the country. Um, you know, like we have a great Pennsylvania group. We have a Massachusetts group that's very strong. We have a, we have a uh, central, we call it national group, but there's members from Canada and Ireland and all over the, all over the world really now. And um, we have about, I think there's about 3,000 people just in that group alone. And in these groups, you can ask questions. You can ask for information. You can ask for support. You can just vent. And people will answer you. So I, we've, I mean, as you can imagine with the holidays just passed, lots of people that had problems over the holidays and they may have snuck in the other room and say, what do you do in this situation? And 20 people answered them. So, and it's all peer support. We don't allow anybody that's selling anything on there. This is all free. There's no marketers on there for, you know, Mm -hmm. for any kind of intervention services, therapy, anything like that. There's, there's, it's all people that have gone through it or are currently going through it. And so that's what the peer support per apart looks like. And also, and that came out of seeing a gap. 
I saw that there was no place to go for that, so I tried to create it. And now we have almost 20,000 members across the country. Um, then the other piece is the financial mission, which is to raise money for sober living. And we do that in the state of Massachusetts. I work with clinical, uh, the clinical directors and case management at um, state-supported facilities. And we raise money for the neediest of the needy. And those people that have been um, hit with that willingness, whatever that is, that moment where they're ready, and people that have been working with them for a long enough period of time to know that they don't have any resources, mm-hmm. know that if they go back out, they're going to... Um, they're going to where they were before, and then the likelihood of them remaining in recovery is is much, much less. So we try to help them with the first four weeks of sober living. Maureen Cavanaugh is our guest. We have uh, one more segment with Maureen and her remarkable work and story of substance abuse and uh, and recovery. This is Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano with you. I, I, gee, I hope you found the program by now. And uh, and have been listening. If you know anybody that really ought to be listening to this, uh, maybe you can pass it along. We're here Saturdays around 6 o'clock um, talking about the disease of addiction. Sponsored by Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. We've had a great conversation with Maureen Cavanaugh. She is the, the, the founder of a nonprofit peer-to-peer support group that's growing, unfortunately, but benefiting a lot of people. Magnolia New Beginnings for folks affected by substance abuse in their lives and in their loved ones. She's also the author of a remarkable story, If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. Um, so, um, uh, you know, Maureen, you've, you've watched this now. You, your training in how to perhaps help other people was, was it, you know, on-the-job training, um, and, 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 you know, you've helped lots and lots of people. The, the group is growing. We're looking, looking forward with regard to where we are now in, in, in this situation, how, how much further do we have to go? What other things, in your view, need to be done? Um, is everybody on the same page yet? I don't think so. You know, everybody wants to um, think of the quick fix. And, and I know it's an emergency, so you want to you want to stop the bleeding, more or less. But we have to start thinking long term because we can't keep putting people in and out of treatment. That's the in and out and in and out. And uh, you know, and even when what happens often is people become they get they become criminally involved and arrested, and then we release them from jail and we release them to nothing. So that's where why I was I thought that. Um, the four weeks of sober living was so important and it's not nearly enough. We have to start thinking about job training for people that have um, been involved for maybe years and they're young and they're employable if mm-hmm. they if they get into recovery but they don't have skills or they don't have the education help with um, with with going back to school, a roof over your head. You have to have a roof over your head and food and, and the ability to to have time to look for a job if you want to um, if you want to stay in recovery. There's got to be some kind of um, light at the end of the tunnel, and we have to help people with that. So not only emotionally supporting them, but we have to financially think about what we need to do to keep people in recovery. Otherwise, we're going to keep losing them. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. If uh, nothing else, be- people should begin to understand that, as you, as you mentioned, with regard to treating this disease, there is no button to push or magic bullet that's going to slay this thing. That treatment, in fact, is a 
is not one thing. It's a continuum. That's why the sober living is so uh, very important. Uh, and the uh, employment opportunities, you have a story about Katie stumbling once again, being sp- sent into a negative spiral because she thought she was doing well, cleaned herself up, began applying for jobs and almost had one until they did a background check, right? Right. Exactly. So, and she had open cases, and that, and that's, you know, she was down in Florida, and she was doing fantastic. But she, and she did have to clear up these cases, but we just wanted her to have a little bit of time behind her to be strong enough not to relapse. But what happened is she had to, she came back to Massachusetts to clear up these open cases and be able to start fresh, and then wound up relapsing, and, and it never, and it, it, it didn't happen. So we, I think that you know when. When something is affecting this many people, we have to start looking at it uh, differently and figuring out not only what to do before, but what to do after, because we have many, many people. We, we're losing a lot of people every year, but 23.5 million people live in recovery. And in order to increase that number, and, and we have to support those people. Well, one of the things that uh, your work, and we like to think this program um, attempts to do, is to make sure that the community, our communities, understand that we are all in this together. I mean, that silence that you confronted when when it first happened, you understandable, but we can't afford to be like that now. We, we can't afford to act like it's happening over there and it hasn't happened to us. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, and you have a lot of people that are in recovery coming out and talking about it. You have a lot of people that I know who have lost children that are talking about it. Parents who, um, parents who have come out the other side need to start talking about their children's recovery and how it is possible and, um, and get, do, and starting to do the work of some of this because parents can be a very strong advocacy group and, uh, and lobby group if, if they start getting involved. Not just parents that have been through it, too. People that are just anybody, really, because this can happen to anyone. And that's the reason I wrote this book. I want people to look at me, and I will tell you that this I am not who you think, who you would like to think this happens to. I have two master's degrees. I love my children. Their father loved them. There was no major trauma. There was, it's not what people think. So I think we all have to gather together so that we don't lose one more person. It can't be so personalized that it can't happen to your own family. We have to spread it out and work so that this doesn't happen to anybody. Uh, Maureen, how do people find out more about Magnolia? What do they do? Uh, we're at magnolianewbeginnings.org is the uh, website, and you can go on there if you're looking for support group. There's a tab on there, and you can find your state or come join the national group. Lots of conversation in there. Um, if if you want to get involved in in the uh, in the helping aspect, are there uh, uh, ways in Mag- Magnolia can direct you to do that? We have. I have wouldn't be able to run that group without the admins, without the moderators in that group. So, I mean, there's plenty of places once you get in to join and um, and look for uh, places to volunteer and things to do in sure. your own state. Absolutely. Maureen, how's Katie doing? Katie's awesome. Katie is the person that I think most people had written off that they thought she'd never get well. And um, I think and she's doing amazingly. Uh, she's working two part-time jobs. She's back to school. She's going to school to be an esthetician like she wanted to all along. And she just got engaged. 
Oh, terrific. Well, you know what? The biggest break she ever caught was her mom. Um, we thank you for your time and your work. The nonprofit is called magnolianewbeginnings.org if you want more information. And I, I got to tell you if, you, if you want to read one book about uh, this, this uh, awful, awful disease, um, you, you could do no better than If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. Maureen, thanks so much and uh, uh, continued success with your work and good luck to Katie. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll look for us next week on Recovery Radio. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.